We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning, so I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we uh, look at the study of the success of the early church. You know, we we often talk about Acts chapter 2. You know, again, I've mentioned this before that this is probably one of our favorite uh, passages for the New Testament church. Uh, Of course, the day of Pentecost takes place in Acts chapter 2, and this was a pivotal, pivotal day for human history. I have a book in my office that's simply titled The Hub of the Bible. And this book deals specifically, you know, it's yay thick, but it deals specifically for Acts chapter 2. It's written all about Acts chapter 2, and again, many refer to it as the hub of the Bible because there's just so much So much importance going on there. Prophecies from the Old Testament are being fulfilled. That first gospel sermon that Peter preached uh, takes place there. The church is established and it's going to affect the entire world from that point on. And even Peter, in Acts chapter 11, when he's talking to Cornelius, he refers to this time as the beginning. You know, again, this is an important time in the early life of the church. It's the beginning of the church, and Peter refers to it as the beginning. It's the start of this great uh, thing. And so many, of course, on that day responded favorably to Peter's sermon, of course, in Acts chapter 2, how, how he preaches that Jesus Christ was rejected by his own people and the Jews Through the hands of godless men, the the Romans, they crucified Jesus on that day. They nailed him to the cross. But of course, the great news is God did not allow Jesus to see corruption. Uh, He he raised him from the dead. Uh, He arose and ascended back to the right hand of God. And of course, the Jews, remember, they were pierced to the heart when they heard this message. And they said, brethren, what must we do? And of course, uh, Peter at that point does what a lot of uh, gospel preachers do at the end of their sermons. They, they offer the invitation. So Peter offered the invitation to the Jews and, uh, who were listening and let them know what their responsibility was. And that was for them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And of course, the Bible tells us that many did this on that day. Many were taught those things and 3,000 souls were immersed and, and the Lord, we're told, was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And at that point in the book of Acts, we see Christianity, we see the church expanding at a phenomenal rate. You know, and, and if we were to go back to uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we would notice that Jesus predicted this. Right? Jesus told the apostles that Uh, that they were going to be his witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and then Samaria and then the outer remotest parts of the world. Uh, It would spread like that. And we see that if we would, you know, if we had the time to read through all of the book of Acts this morning, we would notice that in some places, like in Acts chapter four, verse four, we were told at that point there were 5,000 men. And we think that he's specifically writing about men uh, here. So uh, we could double that number. And there was probably around 10,000 in the church by Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, we're told that there were multitudes of men and women constantly being added. You know, Luke, Luke doesn't have count anymore, right? He, he just says there was a multitude of those who were being added. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, when the persecution began on the church, remember the Christians started to scatter. They started to disperse throughout the known world, but they weren't doing that in hiding. They weren't doing that in scared. The Bible tells us that they were going about preaching the word. And so we see the, the, the gospel message being taken out of Jerusalem and expanding again throughout the remotest parts of the world. And so within decades, 
Christianity has spread really over the entire Roman Empire that we know this. But again, what caused that explosion? What was so successful about the early church? As Daniel just read for us this morning, you know, Jesus already explained to them that the kingdom of heaven would be like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven, the church would be like this, this tiniest of seeds that gets planted in the ground. And over time, it's going to expand into a great tree. That's what the church was in reference to. And so we might ask, well, what were some of the characteristics of the, those first century Christians that accommodated Christianity's accelerating influence? Notice with me in Acts chapter 2, in verse 46 in particular, that we see a little glimpse on their mindset. It says there that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple the, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Uh, notice some of those phrases that he says. Uh, the Christians met day by day. They, they had this one mind, one accord. They were, they were breaking bread from house to house, meaning they, they were eating their common meals together. Uh, but they were doing this with gladness, with sincerity or simplicity. Or maybe your translation says singleness of heart. You know, this was the, the, their daily lives. This is how they treated one another. Uh, the, the verse that we're going to concentrate, though, on this morning, if we go back up to verse 42 in Acts chapter 2, this is what we're going to uh, notice uh, where the success came from the early church. Not only did they do these things day by day and they were glad and they had one mind and one heart, but here are some key traits that we see again in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 uh, of this early church. And notice the, Luke records for us that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So let's, let's focus on those things this morning. Let's, let's discuss this. Let's talk about this and see how this early church came to be such the, the dominant force in the world that it was. So we, we, we notice the first thing that, that Luke records in that verse is that they were continually devoting themselves uh, to four specific acts. But this, this, you know, this word here means that they weren't inconsistent in doing these things, but rather they were persistent. Uh, the word means literally uh, to be strong towards. They were continually devoting themselves. They were continually strong towards doing these things. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. See, Luke was focusing on this steady, this progressive, this vigorous behavior of the first century church. And so let's notice these things. First, he says the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Do we understand that, that the apostles had authority? See, well, why didn't Luke say at this point that they were continuing in the Lord's teaching? Well, that's what we might expect, right? Uh, because that's the source of, of Christianity, after all, is Christ. But the Lord, we remember, during his earthly ministry, he delegated authority to his apostles. Well, let's ask ourselves, what or who were the apostles? You know, that word apostle uh, it simply means, uh, in its generic sense, uh, one sent forth with a message. Okay, and we see throughout Scripture that some individuals, such as Barnabas and Paul and Timothy and Silas and even Jesus himself, 
were referred to generically as apostles. They were ones who were sent forth with a message to, uh, to uh, uh, deliver to others. But specifically, when we're talking about the apostles, you know, those capital A apostles, we're talking about those 12 apostles that, that Jesus brought together. Notice in Matthew chapter 10, starting in, in verse uh, 2, he, he lists all of those for us. Matthew does. He says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the the one who uh, betrayed him. So, again, you know, when we focus on this word apostle, there's a generic sense and a specific sense in which it can be used. You know, if I told you that I lived on the the, or if I lived in the White House on Elm Street, you know, you could drive up and down Elm Street and looking at all the White Houses. But, you know, I really didn't tell you uh, specifically where I lived. I told you generically uh, where I lived. That wouldn't be too helpful. But if I said to you that I lived in the White House. You know, you know what I meant. You, you know that I'm referring to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Again, uh, we see this uh, as well in this term for the apostles. Uh, there is a generic sense which that term is used, but there is a specific sense. And we want to focus on that specific sense because that is what exactly Luke is recording for us in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, when he's talking about the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. You know, those who, who Jesus specifically chose and sent forth and gave them that message. You know, in Acts chapter 1, we actually see sort of a definition of the, who was qualified to be an apostle. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 20, notice it says, and they're speaking of, of Judas and his betrayal and how they needed to replace him with another man. In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us in this resurrection. See, he says the qualification for one to be an apostle was they needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And that, of course, that's why there are no capital A apostles today, right? uh, because no one living today is a witness of the resurrection. Uh, there's no such thing as apostolic succession. Uh, when the apostles died, uh, th- that qualification, that, that authorship went away. See, when James, the, the, the apostle James in Acts chapter 12, when he died, we noticed that there was, no, um, uh, there was no succession of his spot. They didn't go out and pick another man for him because at, when the apostles uh, were martyred for their faith, uh, beginning in Acts 12 and throughout uh, history, uh, they were not replaced. Again, they, there must have been an eyewitness to the resurrection. They also were specifically chosen and received this divine revelation from Jesus. Notice in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, we have this great discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples, really starting in chapter 14 and going onward through chapter 17. Uh, But notice in John chapter 16, starting in verse 12, what Jesus says to his, his 12. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus says there are a lot more things that I want to teach you. I want to tell you, but I just don't have the time. My time is drawing near. And so at some point, the Holy Spirit is going to come. This comforter, he's going to come and he's going to give you all the truth. And of course, that happens in Acts chapter 2. Again, uh, that great day. Also, we notice the qualifications of apostles. Not only were they eyewitnesses, not only were they specifically chosen from Jesus, but also we also know that they were able to impart a miraculous gifts. Again, that's why the miraculous no longer exists today, because the apostles have all died off. So what is this apostles doctrine? What is this apostles teaching? You know, I don't know about you, uh, but, but th- this Bible that I'm preaching from, it, it's got a lot of red letters in it. You know, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about that or wondered why that was, but some Bible translators will highlight or, or will color the words of Jesus in red and then the rest of the text in black. You know, and that can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. But, you know, some people can take that to mean that maybe the red letters are, you know, a little more important than the black letters. But we don't want to uh, take that and, that and to mean it that way. The, uh, of course, all of God's word is equally important. They are all of God's words. You know, all scripture is inspired by God. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, you know, Jesus is sending out his, his 12 apostles. He's sending out his 12 and he's charging them with this limit, limited commission to go out and to preach uh, the word. And, you know, he tells them, uh, again, not, not to uh, go to anyone but those uh, who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And again, he's only given these directions to uh, the apostles. And he says, when you, know, when you get ready to speak, uh, don't even think what you're going to speak. You know, uh, don't even, you know, premeditate your sermons. Right? How great that would be for me to, you know, you know, just to be able to get up here and just to say whatever came to me. Right. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. But to the 12 apostles, Jesus said, listen, don't even think, don't even premeditate your sermons because he says in that very hour, I am going to give you the words to speak. But but the spirit of your father is going to speak through you and in you. And again, the apostle Paul, you know, he has to defend his apostleship uh, throughout all of his uh, epistles. Uh, Notice in Galatians chapter one, uh, starting in verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What we want to understand is the apostles' teaching Uh, This was teaching from Jesus. This was teaching from God. This wasn't their own words, but these were things that were given to them. The writers of the New Testament epistles, you know, they often wrote in uh, the imperative mood. And what that means is they gave commands. They spoke with authority. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, the things which I write, these are the Lord's commands. They're writing, again, inspired of God, the apostles' doctrine. And, of course, the first century saints, they, they reverence the apostles' teaching. And again, this should be a model for you and I how we regard Scripture today. 
They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we must too. Notice as well uh, in that verse, he says that they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Again, uh, you know, as we just talked about in the word uh, for uh, apostle, there's a specific and generic. And so the same thing as well with fellowship. There's a generic sense that we use the word fellowship. And there's also a specific sense in this verse that we use it as well. But for, for the most time, when we find this word in the, uh, this word in the Greek, koinonia, you know, that's a fun word to say, koinonia, uh, it's often always translated fellowship. And but sometimes we can find it also translated another way, such as communion or communication or distribution or contribution. But of course, the context is going to tell us, you know, what that word uh, means and how it should be translated. Notice in first John chapter one, first John chapter one, starting in verse six, we're going to notice uh, this this fellowship aspect of these two verses that the Apostle John is, is is teaching them. And he says in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, well, let's back up to verse 5. He says, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We notice the first uh, in this verse six, he refers to this vertical fellowship. He says that we have fellowship with God. As long as we are walking in the light, we have that fellowship with God. But then notice in verse seven, it says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, uh, first there's this vertical fellowship, but now there's a horizontal fellowship. We have fellowship with God, and then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins, it says. Fellowship, this sharing, this common participation, it's essential, essential for Christianity. It's a source of great comfort when others are sharing with us in our troubles and our burdens and our common needs and even in our blessings. It's the glue that holds us together. When, when we walk in the light, we have this, we have this in common, uh, the blood of Jesus. And, and again, you know, to this, this morning, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a fellowship meal, a potluck, if you will, after Bible classes. And everyone is invited, of course, and we'd love to have you uh, to be there. And this is what this is all about. And we hope to every fourth Sunday to continue to do this and to, uh, you know, have a meal together and then come back uh, upstairs afterwards and, and worship one more time. But that's what this is all about. It's about having fellowship with one another, about sharing with one another. Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, just as we referenced that there is a generic uh, use to that term, there's also a specific. And a lot of uh, you know, Christian scholars believe that what this passage is referring to, uh, this sharing, this fellowship, is in reference to uh, the contribution, right? the contribution that we make on the first day of the week. Uh, note, notice in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, that I have uh, mentioned up on the board, because here is a place where the word koinonia is translated, not fellowship. But notice in Romans 15, verse 26, Paul writes, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a koinonia, a fellowship, a sharing, a contribution. 
See, when we drop our, our collection in the collection plate, when, when we come into worship, you know, this is not simply a financial transaction, right? We, we are sharing with one another. This is fellowship when, when we do this. When a Christian fails to recognize his responsibility to give generously to the Lord on his day, you know, we rob God. We rob his brethren. We rob people who need to hear the gospel. We rob ourselves of this act of worship. And by and large, the early Christians were exceedingly, exceedingly generous. And we, again, do not have the time to go through all of Acts chapter a two and following to see that, but they were exceedingly generous and they continually devoted themselves to fellowship. And again, we must too. I noticed the, the third thing he says they continually devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Again, another set of generic and specifics. So when we talk generically, we're talking about having a meal together. But when we're talking specifically, especially when we see the definite article, the, in front of breaking the bread, the breaking of bread, this is what we know as the Lord's Supper, what we just partook of here a few minutes ago. And notice that he says the breaking of bread. Well, where's the, the fruit of the vine? Well, this is what in English we refer to as a synecdoche. It's a part of something that stands for the whole. The breaking of bread represents the Lord's Supper. I might have used this illustration with you before, but, you know, if I said uh, come out into the parking lot and check out my wheels, you know, I'm not referring to uh, the four tires on my car, but I'm referring to my vehicle. I want you to come check out my vehicle. Right? But even though I refer to it as my wheels, uh, the part of something stood for the whole. And again, when, when the, uh, the writers, uh, the biblical writers did this very much uh, often, when they refer to the breaking of bread, they're referring to uh, the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, of course, on the first day of the week when they are gathered together to break bread. Uh, we, of course, know that as the Lord's Supper. You know, again, nothing is said of the fruit of the vine, uh, but we know that it was observed. Jesus instituted those two elements. But notice uh, when we think of the Lord's Supper, you know, that, that word there, Lord's, uh, uh, two times within Scripture, uh, it is, uh, it is in an adjective form. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, uh, when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, you know, that was referring to uh, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And of course, that's a very important day within Scripture because Christ was raised from the dead on that day. On Sunday, the early disciples began meeting on that day. The church again was established on that day. And we even know that the, the saints met and contributed to the, the, the contribution, the church treasury on that day. But also in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, is the second usage of that word as an adjective, and that's in reference to the Lord's Supper. We know that the church in Corinth, were, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And Paul had to write to them and to correct that because they were coming together and they weren't waiting for one another. Uh, they were uh, not sharing with one another. But Paul said, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Again, just like in Corinth, it's possible for you and I, when we come together, to break bread and to drink the fruit of the vine, but we're not necessarily eating the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we're living in sin or we have a failure to, as Paul says, to properly discern the body in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 and 29, you know, this can result in this. Uh, but that doesn't mean that when we come together that we have to be perfect, that we have to have our lives in order. 
Of course not. But we must be sincere. We must be sincerely trying as we, again, come together and partake in this fellowship, this communion, uh, this breaking of bread. And again, the early disciples, the early Christians continually devoted themselves to this, to the Lord's Supper. And again, we must too. Well, the last thing we want to notice, and we're not going to take up too much time on this because, you know, I've preached a couple of lessons on prayer here recently, especially on Wednesday evenings. But uh, we know the importance of prayer. And again, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. You know, regular communication with God affects our behavior. It does. And it makes us less vulnerable to temptations and weaknesses. You know, it's hard. It is hard to have a bad attitude with someone when you, are prior, when you are constantly praying for them. You know, those two things do not mix in this life. Ill feelings uh, will dissipate. And it would be a, you know, it would, again, it would be a worthwhile habit for us as Christians to uh, create some sort of plan regularly for each uh, of us to pray for one another. Again, um, Choose five people a day. You know, write them on a list. Mark them off. You know, put their names on your bathroom mirror or on a sticky note. You know, have those things constantly in front of you and pray for one another. Go through the directory. You know, go alphabetical order. You know, I'm a t- last name Tanksley, a T. You know, it's going to be a while till you get to me, but that's okay, right? Pray for your brethren. Prayer is an antidote for division. It cements our unity. And again, it brings us closer to God and to others. And the early church continually devoted themselves to prayer. This morning, you know, why did I take about 25 minutes to preach on one verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 42? Because this is an important verse. This is a verse that tells us the the lifestyle, the, the culture of the early Christians. How did the early church grow like a mustard seed? Again, they were continually devoting themselves to apostolic teaching, to fellowship, to partaking of the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And we see phrases throughout the book of Acts like day by day and with gladness and with singleness of heart. See, when we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and be influenced for Christ in the community in which we live, uh, these things are going to be part of our lives. We're going to be continually devoted to them, continually steadfast. When we are not steadfast, however, we, we hinder or prevent our own spiritual growth and fail to exercise the influence on Christ or for Christ on others. And again, what an example we have this morning in the early church uh, who were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This morning, as we, we offer the invitation, if you're here with us this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you haven't been added to the, the, the church, to the body, as we read about in Acts chapter 2. Again, notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, uh, the, the Christians were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, how were they doing that? Go back to verse 38, because Peter gives them the answer, and he gives us the answer as well. To repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins, and we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord will add you to his church, as he says, if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, uh, we would love the opportunity to study with you. We would love the opportunity to uh, baptize you. The waters behind me are ready for that as well. Or if you're here with us this morning and you're part of this body here and you're struggling, uh, you need 
prayers of this congregation for strength, maybe for forgiveness. Again, no better time to do that within the fellowship of the body here this morning. However, we can help you this morning. Please come forward as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.